Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. America has often prided itself as a nation of immigrants. Apart from indigenous peoples, Americans generally are descended from someone who came to this country from somewhere else. Despite this history, in recent years, many Americans have shown growing hostility toward immigrants. Politicians like former President Donald Trump have fueled and capitalized on this hostility in their anti-immigrant rhetoric. Immigrants who are engaged, who engage in political action of some type or hold elective office are particular targets of hostile reactions. My guests today are the principal investigators in a major national study, the Immigrant Visibility and Political Activism Research Collaborative, a joint initiative of Providence College and the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, this project is funded by the Russell Sage Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Uh, this study seeks to understand xenophobic reactions to immigrants, in particular reactions toward those immigrants who engage in political action. With me are the principal investigators who are going to provide us a early look at their found findings from this project. So I'm pleased to welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Professor Jeff Pugh of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Professor Matt Guardino of Providence College. Regular listeners are familiar with Professor Guardino, who is a frequent guest on Beyond Your News Feed, most recently on a very interesting episode about the demise of local news. Uh, I'm uh, very pleased that Professor Jeff Pugh is joining us for the first time. Uh, Jeff is an old friend and colleague who spent several years on the political science faculty here at Providence College until he was allured away to the UMass Boston to join the faculty of the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies, where he is an associate professor of conflict resolution. So Jeff, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. And Matt, once again, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation and having right. us on. And we're recording on Zoom uh, this time and both our guests uh, look uh, very fit and eager to talk about their very exciting study. So why don't we, be, we begin and have you sort of give a, some background uh, on this study, the Visibility and Political Activism Research Collaborative, which I note in all your documents, you refer to as Ivy Park. <laughs> so uh, the acronym. But anyway, tell us about the study. Uh, what, what are its... Uh, major goals, how did it come together, and how did your collaboration uh, as the two principal investigators uh, occur? Matt, why don't you give a bird's eye overview of the project, and then I'll talk about the backstory. Okay, sounds good. So uh, this is a project um, that is, just as our, uh, as our acronym suggests, really about uh, attitudes, uh, Americans' attitudes toward immigrants, but especially toward um, the political activity and political visibility or invisibility of immigrants in the United States. And so 
as Jeff will get into in a little bit, that it ultimately comes out originally of a of a framework that Jeff created um, and built on in some publications, including his recent book. Uh, and you know what we're really doing here is taking some interesting theories and ideas and findings that Jeff generated from work in Latin America on uh, immigrants and, and attitudes toward immigrants uh, in Latin America and kind of transporting them a bit to the U.S. context and looking at um, U.S. attitudes toward immigrants and particularly the extent to which uh, immigrants' political activity is tolerated and valued um, um, in this context. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of moving parts to it, but that's sort of the basic um, sort of topic and foundation for it. Yeah, so this really draws on this research you've been doing over for many years now, Jeff, uh, in, in Latin America. Uh, you, perhaps you can tell us something about that background, and, and then I'd like to hear more about how that sort of led to you connecting up with Matt and coming uh, conceiving this study. Absolutely. Um, so a theme that'll probably come up a few times throughout the conversation today is the speed of research. And I tend to be one of those folks that thinks that big, good ideas take some time to percolate a little bit, and or maybe that's self-justification. It took me about 15 years to, from the start of my project to when I published the book. And, um, you know, I was doing field work in Ecuador on Colombian um, migrants, especially, and the way that the Ecuadorian host population um, facilitated or rejected their integration and, and their political participation. And I most of my work tends to be on the global south. I'm an international relations and comparative politics person. Um, yeah, and Jeff, in, in that study, that study was in northern Ecuador, right on the border of Colombia, right? And Colombian uh, immigrants were coming across, right? Escaping the violence and things in Colombia. Yeah, for most of the past two decades, um, Colombia was the biggest producer of forced migrants because of its 60-year-long civil war, and Ecuador was the largest recipient of refugees and, and asylum seekers in the Americas. And so uh, it was a, a quite a laboratory for studying this in a, in a case most people don't think about. Um, and, and one of the things that sort of excited me about studying this, this migrant integration connected with political participation phenomena in the global south is I could really get at the informal dynamics that happen. Um, because I think in the global north, there's this assumption that a law then produces an outcome. And I think it doesn't always work that way. But in the global south, more people are familiar with there's a big gap between what the law says is going to happen and what happens in practice. And those nitty gritty gaps are where I was really drawing. But as interesting as I found that, you know, there's a large segment of the political science discipline that is not so interested in things happening outside of the U.S. And one subfield that tends to think that the United States is exceptional, right? That the kinds of politics that happen here are completely unrelated to the kinds that happen elsewhere. And so I thought, wow, this is an opportunity. I found this sort of 
pattern of the way that people integrate or reject migrants, the the importance of um, contact for peace building and things like that. And I think it applies here too, that the informal dynamics that happen um, could be applied to the US. And I actually did construct a, a, a survey experiment and carried it out with a with a MTurk sample. So very much a convenient sample of US participants. But as I started to try to do something with that, I began hitting up on the limitations of my own um, skill set, right? I, 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 I love big picture ideas. I'm a mixed methods person. So I use survey data in my book. I use network analysis, interviews, ethnography, et cetera. But there's a limit to how sophisticated the quant methods are that I'm able to, to do just because of training. And so as I started translating this into the U.S. context, I said, this has potential. This could be a really interesting contribution to conversations in the U.S. about immigration. It's a timely topic. And I think that it could benefit from a collaboration. And I, I was well familiar from having been colleagues with Matt and actually part of the hiring process of bringing Matt to Providence College of his well-established track record, not only as an American politics specialist, uh, a methodologist, but also theoretically he had complementary skill sets to mine, much more depth in political psychology and political communication, whereas I probably bring more experience on immigration as a, a topic itself. And so that was exciting. And in 2017, uh, so if we're counting five years ago now, I reached out to Matt with this idea. And um, in in true fashion, Matt was cautious at first, but interested and said, you know, I'm intrigued, but just so you know, I'm, I'm busy the rest of this semester. So we got to sort of set expectations about the timeline. Of course, five years later, that seems quaint to be worried about what the um, the schedule was that semester. But we met at APSA, the American Political Science Association, and really sort of hammered out what could be the basis of this collaboration. And we've been working on it, got a grant this past year uh, to really um, put a lot of energy behind it. And that's been exciting. Um, I'll just, uh, it's, I, I want to get Matt to chime in here as well on his side of the, the um, track record, but I, I want to really emphasize that this has been uh, a true collaborative effort. And this past year, um, the full IV Park team has been essential to scaling up the effort and its success. So we have a, a research collaborative that includes the two of us as primary investigators, but also three research assistants. Kelsey Edmund and Chris Langevin are doctoral students at UMass Boston, and Julia McCoy, a political science graduate from Providence College. And they have just brought energy and, and wonderful ideas and good in, good um, contributions to the project too. So, well, that, that's great. So uh, with this collaborative, my understanding is that one of the things your grant has allowed you to do is to do a very extensive survey uh, to provide data uh, for your analysis. Uh, Jeff, I want, I want us to get to your theory of uh, the invisibility bargain the sort of the theoretical framework for this in a minute, but we'll kind of go 
at that through the back door. And I wonder if Matt could say a little something about the survey you've done, which is sort of the heart that, that has produced the data that you're going to be analyzing over the next few years. Sure. So to to kind of piggyback off what Jeff was saying earlier about our kind of the the origins of our collaboration, uh, when Jeff approached me about this, I mean I was familiar with Jeff's work um, and uh, and impressed with it, of course, for many years. But I had had virtually no knowledge of Latin American politics and very little knowledge of immigration politics in the U.S. So I was coming at it sort of with fresh eyes. But when I looked at the data, he had mentioned the MTurk sort of pilot study that he asked me to take a look at um, and to kind of do some work on analyzing. I was really intrigued by the idea. And I thought that, you know, um, this could be something uh, that could be the basis of a bigger project with higher quality data with a much larger sample. And it would be an interesting way to apply a lot of theories um, and concepts in public opinion, political psychology, which is what I do, and to apply it in this kind of quantitatively rigorous way and kind of kind of have that synergy. And we, as Jeff mentioned, we were able to do that. Uh, and, and, and it was fascinating because Again, it allowed me to learn about immigration, which is extremely, to put it mildly, politically important in the U.S. as elsewhere, and to um, really kind of dig into this with some excellent data. And so with the help of our grant from Russell Sage and the Carnegie Corporation, we were able to uh, hire um, the survey firm YouGov, um, which is a very highly respected firm, uh, to um, help us field a survey, which we fielded in September 20, 2021, so last year, uh, that is um, really excellent. First of all, it's a demographically representative sample of U.S. adults, which is increasingly difficult to obtain um, in the given the kind of technological and social conditions that we live in. And so we were fortunate to get this money to be able to hire one of the best firms around to help us do this. Um, and so we were able to get a sample of 1,800, which is a very, very large sample for this type of study, U.S. adults. Uh, and it's not a, a probability study in the technical sense, uh, but because of YouGov's excellent matching methods, um, they're able to create uh, or generate a demographically representative sample. So we're very, very, very confident that the findings that we have reflect the broad U.S. population and this is also very recent data, right? So just about eight months after the end of the uh, Trump presidency, September 2021. And so we're able to really get a, a good look at immigration attitudes and immigration politics uh, in that, you know, recent and really salient political context. The other piece of the, of the survey that's important is we embedded an experiment in it, which we can talk more about later. Uh, we're able to not just ask uh, respondents' questions about their views and, and behaviors regarding immigration uh, and beliefs, but also to uh, show them different photographs of immigrant rights and other protest marches and to gauge their reactions to them um, using uh, uh, experimental methods, which is an important piece of what, you know, that we're able to, to bring to the project. Okay, super. Well, let, let's start to dig a little bit into the substance of, of your work. And, and to begin, uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your theory or conceptual framework, whatever you want to call it, of, of the invisible invisibility bargain, which you derive from your work in Ecuador. So what's that about? Yeah, so this 
the insights that inform this framework have been distilling for a long time. They were present in my dissertation at Johns Hopkins and then refined in the book. And they're not completely new. They're not something that usually would surprise immigration scholars. They derive on uh, on quite a long trajectory of, of several um, sort of theories about why um, a host population might be more or less receptive to immigrants coming in. And in, in this case, also more or less receptive to allowing political participation. Um, but the hope is that by tying them together in a cohesive framework, it allows us to really understand some of what happens. So the idea is that in most host countries that receive immigrants, it's not the case that everybody in the country just says all immigrants should go out, you know, should leave. There are a lot of people who want immigrants to be in the country. And there are even more people who are willing to allow it to happen, sort of a, an implicit um, tolerance of immigrant presence. But there's a set of unwritten but strongly enforced expectations about the rules that immigrants have to follow in order to stay, right? So after looking in the US and South Africa and Ecuador and, and elsewhere, time and time again, I, I saw the importance of economic contribution, right? There's a, a, a rich theory of economic threat and, and things like that. The idea that um, immigrants should should be contributing something of value to the host country. Otherwise, they're seen as a burden or a, 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 an economic threat, and more people will want them to, to be deported or to not come in in the first place. Um, but beyond the con valued contribution, and I changed it, I used to call it economic contribution, and now I refer more to valued contribution because it could be other things like military service, for example, um, we found actually to be quite important. Immigrants, even undocumented immigrants who have served in the military are sort of seen as having made a valued contribution to the host country. So that's important. And also that the immigrants be seen to maintain social and political invisibility. And so what that means is they can maintain a presence, people won't actively persecute or try to kick them out as long as they're contributing with their labor or something else of, of value to the host country and their differences in terms of race, culture, um, or other markers of difference aren't being publicly expressed so much that they are putting their differences in your face, right? So the hijab ban in, in France is an example of this, where um, public officials in, in France are not supposed to wear a, a hijab, uh, a headscarf indicating Muslim faith, because that's seen as a marker of difference that sets them outside of the norms and values of secular French society. Um, and you're saying that even in a country like the United States, Jeff, uh, a, a woman wearing hijab um, uh, kind of violates your invisibility bargain in that she's making herself noticeable as an immigrant who has perhaps a different religious faith than the dominant faith in the community where she lives. 
Right. So that's an example of the social invisibility bargain expectation being being violated. Now, which markers are salient is going to vary by country. Um, and, and we'll get more into that in a minute, but certainly that. Um, and, and also language, right? The, it, anyone who's been in a Walmart and heard someone accost a couple of people speaking in Spanish or Korean and say, hey, you're in America, speak American. Exactly. That is that social sanction for a perceived violation of this social invisibility expectation. Um, and then the political invisibility expectation is the idea that immigrants are not becoming involved in overtly demanding things from the host government. And this sort of follows from a logic of kind of an ownership paradigm. This is our country. You're a guest here. And if you're going to come in, you should just be grateful. It's it's what Caroline Mullen calls a, a logic of gratitude with immigration, that um, it's not that immigrants have inherent rights, that they're here because of our generosity to let them. And so if they start demanding things and demanding their rights, that shows that they're they're not appreciating that generosity that they are are um, exercising a political standing that actually is more precarious um, than that and so all put together if if an immigrant group is perceived to be making a valued contribution is is sort of restraining its public expression of cultural differences and is not making overt political demands, they're more likely to be accepted and um, allowed to stay. Now, what that does, the, the dark side of that is it leads to a precarious status, right? They're being told, we'll extract your labor, but want you to deny your full humanity, your full personhood, um, it, because that would show that you're claiming a, a sort of central role in the political society that we don't want to give you. And so presence without a sort of rights. And for what you say, Jeff, then uh, an immigrant who violates uh, that bargain, that invisibility bargain, who in fact doesn't conform to these expectations is sort of creating a target on themselves, right? They'll, a target of hostility. I, I thought it interesting in one of your papers, you begin uh, by talking about Representative Ian Omar, uh, who is a, uh, perfect example of someone who violates all of these things you talked about. Uh, well, maybe not the first one. She certainly has made economic contributions, but certainly she, you know, she wears the hijab. Uh, she is active in politics and not shy about expressing her political opinions. And she has been sort of people like Donald Trump sort of pick her out and, and attack her because she's, you know, not acting the way uh, immigrants are supposed to to act. Yeah. Matt, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just one thing I wanted to add to, again, sort of on the big picture level with this, and, and it speaks to my interest um, in, in this project specifically, which is that, as Jeff said, you know, one of the implications is the sort of precariousness of, of immigrants who are seen to violate these expectations and the ways in which their lives and communities' lives can be negatively affected. Obviously, extremely important. Another additional way to look at this is from the, the perspective, especially with the political visibility and visibility, the perspective of the health of democracy in the host country uh, and the vitality of it. And so I'm, I'm interested in a lot of my work um, 
in political voice and in the conditions that, you know, kind of maximize and diversify political voice, say through the media um, and those that constrict it. Right. And so I saw an interesting way to think about this with the invisibility bargain, because, you know, to the extent that these attitudes are strong and widespread and like, say, in a country like the United States, then the overall democratic political system and political culture is impoverished in an interesting way that I not, not, had not previously really thought about, right? And so um, that's, it's important to realize that the negative implications of this um, are, you know, multidimensional. Yeah, and it occurs to me, Matt, that the implications might even be broader than just immigrants. That is, there are other people in society who also are subject to some of the same factors. There's this kind of invisibility bargain perhaps for a lot of particularly minority groups in society other than immigrants. Uh, I think African-Americans for, you know, 200, 200, 300 years have had to wrestle with, you know, expectations about uh, what their behavior is. And if, and if they conform to the expectations, uh, if they don't conform to the expectations, then their ability to participate is greatly constricted. So I think that's, you know, these are, the, I, I think you're right. This it occurs to me, this has really, you know, very broad implications for understanding a, a lot of our politics. Uh, so, so, so let's, you know, with, that, with that in mind, okay, so we have this, this concept of invisibility bargain, immigrants are supposed to conform to certain behaviors, otherwise there's sort of this hostility towards them. So you did this survey, uh, maybe to start out with, uh, could you tell us a little something about your, sort of the descriptive findings of what did you learn about how, how Americans think about immigrants in sort of a ger very general way uh, from your survey. So, so I can start with that and just begin at, at kind of a basic, but I think really important level, which is just, you know, using these, you know, looking at the, these high quality data, like how widespread um, attitudes uh, reflective of the invisibility bargain are within the U.S. So just like you know, how many Americans seem to subscribe to these expectations. And what we found basically is a lot of Americans subscribe to these expectations, both in terms of social invisibility and political invisibility. Just so, for example, you think about social invisibility, um, from 30 to 35% of Americans favor either banning outright or severely restricting the entry of immigrants who have minority, racial, religious, or linguistic identities. So they're willing to say in a survey, um, I would like few or no immigrants from say a minority racial background or religious background to enter the United States. That's about a third of Americans. So that's a, a pretty, pretty widespread. Um, similarly, with the political invisibility expectations, a similar number around 30 to 33% of Americans um, are willing to say that they favor prohibiting immigrants in general, and this is an important point. So not undocumented immigrants, but immigrants in general from say contacting government officials, from contacting the media even, from participating in nonviolent protests. So we specifically say nonviolent protests in the survey um, and from even from signing political petitions, right? So again, around a third of Americans willing to outright say that immigrants in general should not be legally allowed to do those things. All right, that's a th so it seems like there's a, a third of Americans who 
in particular have this propensity to expect the invisibility bargain and, and object if it's not if it's not met. Uh, anything else uh, from your survey that? It's also important to recognize certainly the scope that this is not a marginal phenomenon, right? This is pretty ingrained throughout society, but there is variation also. And that was really part of the motivation of this project building on on the previous research with the book is, okay, so we think that this is a pattern that describes a lot of people's behaviors, but obviously some people are more susceptible to it than others which ones? It might apply to certain kinds of immigrants more than other kinds, which ones? And what, what at an individual level, what kinds of factors um, going on in someone's head would make them more likely to lash out or inflict social sanctions on immigrants that they perceive to be violating this bargain? And so that's where we had factors um, that we were looking at about, for example, political intolerance, you know, people saying immigrants should not have the right to protest nonviolently. And we asked about lots of different kinds of immigrants from undocumented immigrants, in which case more than half of the respondents thought they should not have the right to protest nonviolently. Um, those who are undocumented, but as I said earlier, were perceived to be uh, giving the ultimate sacrifice as military veterans, um, only a third of people thought that they should not have the right to engage nonviolently in protest. That's still a significant number, but very different than sort of an unqualified, uh, undocumented population. And then um, for within the legal category, those with a, a permanent visa, 23% of the U.S. population, according to this survey, um, thought that they should not have the right to engage in nonviolent protests. Even naturalized citizens, so people who have all of the same rights as everyone else, they just weren't born here, 13% thought they shouldn't have the right to engage in nonviolent protest. And so um, when people say, oh, well, you know, it, it just matters, undocumented is its own thing. I like the good ones. I like the documented ones. Our findings show that's not that neat and tidy of a story, right? Even for people with documentation, um, there's people who reject those claims. And even for people without documentation, there's a lot of difference in people's comfort level in political activity based on what kind of undocumented immigrant, what kind of contribution they're perceived to be making. So that, I think, is an important distinction that we're able to, to look at. Yeah, and your survey also finds uh, differences based upon country of origin as well. That's right. So uh, we, we have one where Matt was alluding to um, the, the desire to reject immigrants from countries, most of whom have the same race as the dominant group in the U.S., from a different race, those from poorer countries, from different religion and different language. And so in, in, in that finding, language really stands out as a marker of difference in the U.S. context that um, drives a lot of the intensity. So people are more likely to say um, immigrants from countries with a different language uh, should not be allowed to 
few or none should be allowed into the U.S. More than a third of respondents said that. Um, race actually is is a little less um, of a factor. It's still a factor, but um, compared to language and religion, but in this case, especially language, um, it, it's it's less important. And we also looked at region and and country of origin with a social distance scale. So we were asking people in, in, in what social contexts would you accept an immigrant from each of these regions? And we asked about, um, about Africa, Middle East, Asia, Latin America, and Europe. And then it went from who would you be comfortable letting into the country all the way to who would you be comfortable with your close relative marrying? So it's sort of at what level of proximity are you comfortable with these people coming, not just coming into the country or not. And those from Europe, um, more people were comfortable with more proximity. Um, But even even them, um, those from Europe, I think like five, 5%, 6% 5%, 6% said they would not be comfortable with them marrying a, a relative. But in contrast, those from Asia and Latin America were about, uh, about double the likelihood of, of rejecting them at, at close levels of proximity. And those from the Middle East were triple um, compared, to, compared to Europe. And so country of origin, and by that people derive racial and religious proxies, I think. Um, that's another way of looking at that and finding that those markers do really make a difference. Right, and certainly I, I know I, 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 I was very intrigued by your social distance scale as I was preparing this and looking at. And, and it's clear that uh, the, the recent you know, international politics of the last couple of decades you know, two wars in the Middle East, um, uh, the, the war on terror, which is very focused on the Middle East, seems to have had a big impact upon people's willingness to accept people from the Middle East because uh, the, the hostility towards people from the Middle East is, is even so much greater than, than towards people from Latin America or Africa. Uh, and I think that is a direct reflection of, you know, the war on terror. I, I'm I'm sort of speculating, but my guess is that uh, had you done some a survey like this in the 1960s, you probably wouldn't find that big of a difference. Uh, I think that's an important point is these aren't sort of fixed magic recipes that are gonna apply in all places and over all time periods. It, it's a sort of socially constructed relationship between immigrants in their host countries. And it, it changes over time. I think 9-11 was a big uh, shift in the U.S. where religion became more important than it had been before as a marker of difference in a perception of threat. I think before people coming from Latin America were probably more the, the sort of target of um, sort of rejection and anti-immigrant activism. And then afterwards, Islamophobia became especially um, ingrained in media discourse and other places. And so religion, I think, took an important role. And then, you know, which groups are constructed as threatening? I I was recently reading um, Reese Jones' wonderful book, White Borders, and he traces the history in the U.S. back to the Chinese Exclusion Act and shows how ingrained the desire to exclude people from Asia was in the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
and you know more than the other groups and so i think the the specific markers change over time but we can get a sense of the patterns that we can use to examine them yeah exactly matt the, the other thing I would add here is just, again, a bit from a kind of wonky survey methodology perspective, but I think an important substantive point, which is that like this probably, these findings probably understate in many ways, the prevalence and scope of invisibility bargain attitudes and the intensity. And I say that because we're asking very, in many cases, really explicit questions. We're asking people to, you know, honestly and forthrightly say that they would say not accept immigrants from a minority language or race nation, right? Um, or, you know, uh, thinking about the specific regions. And so, and there's this concept called social desirability bias in uh, public opinion research, which basically says that, you know, um, there's a tendency for most of us uh, to downplay uh, the reporting of attitudes, even on anonymous surveys that like socially reflect on us poorly or that we feel that, that they do. And so probably this is really just scratching the surface of the extent to which many of these attitudes are actually held by the American public. Good. And in your survey, you not only uh, try to describe sort of the range of, of attitudes that Americans have in, in regards to immigration and, and the extent to which they conform to the expectations of the invisibility bargain. But you also look at factors that uh, either trigger or mitigate uh, this hostility. Uh, could you talk a little bit about those factors, uh, what those are, and, and uh, what, what you found in your survey? So I can start with that. So in terms of the factors that we, you know, in terms of our key hypotheses that we tested uh, and we we believed might uh, intensify these attitudes. We looked at three. So we looked at ideology, so extent of con extent to which respondents identify as conservative. We looked at authoritarianism, which is a psychological characteristic that reflects a desire for sort of strict social order um, and kind of in-group conformity. And the third one we looked at is something called social dominance orientation, which is another psychological trait um, in which people high in social dominance orientation tend to value um, uh, a kind of strong notion of social hierarchy. Um, and certain groups belong naturally on top, other groups below them, um, and uh, uh, a belief and a justification of group-based inequality. So that's social dominance orientation. Um, and then the key factor that we looked at as potentially mitigating the invisibility bargain attitudes is the extent to which people had contact with immigrants. Um, it's how often they had contact with immigrants and also how positive or of what quality their contacts with immigrants were. So those were the, the key factors. And basically we found that um, conservatism um, makes one more likely to expect social and political invisibility, as does authoritarianism and social dominance orientation. But social dominance orientation seems to have the most powerful effect. So that's sort of the, the kind of take home there. Yeah, could, could we probe that a little bit, uh, just so our listeners understand what the social dominance means? Because of, of the three factors, this is the one that that I had to think more about to really understand what you're getting at. So this is a, a predisposition to 
expect people to be on some kind of a hierarchical level that some people are better than others. Uh, this strikes to me, this would be, white supremacy would be a variant of this, right? Of social dominance, right? If you think all white people are better than people of, of uh, darker shades, that's a kind of social dominance thing. Uh, or, or even something uh, to be sort of a more uh, mundane example, uh, the college fraternity hierarchies, right? Would be the same kind of thing. Am I, am I wrong about that, Jeff? Said. So, of course, all of these factors are, are somewhat related to each other, right? A lot of them go in the similar directions, but part of the design is to be able to disentangle them, control some things and figure out what each one is doing um, on its own. And social dominance orientation, as, as Matt talked about, is the, the one with the strongest effect. Uh, this comes from Jim Sedanius's work. He's a political psych He was a political psychologist at Harvard and um, had sort of invented the concept and then did a lot of really pathbreaking work over a number of years. And I, I guess the hierarchy part is what I, I, like Matt, I would point to most, that not only a, a tolerance for, but I would say a celebration of inequality, that um, there is a natural elite that should be on top, a, as you say, Bill, a superior uh, part, and then those who definitely should be below. And so in maybe a, one way to do it is to contrast it with authoritarianism, which you know is a related concept, but there the, the, the big focus is order, following the rules and, and, and following a, a, an order, whereas maybe social dominance orientation doesn't care as much about order, it cares about this hierarchy. If you get the hierarchy by disrupting the order, so be it. Um, and you know, there's been lately a lot of conversations on headlines and things about the, the great replacement, this idea by some people um, that immigrants represent a threat because they are threatening to replace the position and power of the dominant group in the U.S. Well, what that means is they're changing their location on this natural hierarchy in society, according to these people. So that seems like it's written from the, the text, the, the sort of playbook of social dominance orientation. Yeah, good. So I'll just add to that, um, just to kind of highlight in this, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why we think our project is interesting is because um, there hasn't been, frankly, that much work in political science that uses and that applies the social dominance orientation concept. It really comes out of psychology and political psychology specifically, which highlights the important idea that this is a really deeply rooted predisposition. And it's it's not just uh, support for and justification for a sense of hierarchy and inequality, but it's also a belief that that hierarchy and inequality, group-based hierarchy and inequality is natural. It's part of the natural order, right? Um, and the questions that make up the SDO scale kind of get at that, right, in different ways. Um, so it's hierarchy, which has to do with who's on top and who's on the bottom in terms of power, but it's also inequality of resources. Some groups deserve greater command over resources, including economic resources than others. Um, and that, although it's related authoritarianism conceptually, as well as correlated moderately, empirically, it is a distinct concept 
um, from authoritarianism, uh, as well as from the others that we, we use. And part of the reason to bring in these psychological concepts is to push back a little bit on the sort of easy, superficial answer that some people give in, in public rhetoric that it's a, a left-right story, that um, partisanship just explains everything, that all Democrats are um, pro-immigrant and all Republicans are anti-immigrant. And I, I think what our findings are is partisanship or, or at least ideology is what we've been more working with lately, um, certainly has, a, has an effect, but this almost deeper um, psychological predisposition has more of an effect. And so you could be a conservative person who is low on SDO and you could be quite open to immigrants and their positive role in the host society um, and not be particularly triggered by perceptions of violations of the invisibility bargain. And so I, th I think that's one of the, the contributions we can make with this type of, of research is disentangling those areas that people assume all go together, but in fact may, may be doing different work. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh you also, in, in your work, you, you talk about um, uh, certain contextual factors that trigger hostility. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? What, what, are, what, what are the things going on in society that might trigger someone with a, a social dominance orientation to, to suddenly focus on immigrants? Certainly the political moment matters, right? The kind of discourse, media framing um, of the way immigrants are portrayed. And, um, you know, we already talked about how these things vary over time, 9-11 being one sort of dividing line. Um, I think the Trump presidency also is an important moment that changed the conversation around immigration. It legitimized certain uh, messages, certain framing of immigrants that had not been legitimized beyond a, a real fringe before that, and sort of gave permission to a lot of people to mainstream um, uh, both rhetoric about immigrants that had previously not been accepted in polite society, and also policies, more extreme policies than had been contemplated before. And so the, the role of a powerful national political figure and movement really legitimizing a set of discourses also allows or, or sort of empowers larger segments of society to, to enact more severe social sanctions to the perceived invisibility bargain violations that they see. So in that sense, you know, political um, opportunities, rhetoric and, and media framing make a difference. I would just also point to, on the other side, what mitigates um, the intensity of this pattern, um, people's relationships um, in the host society with immigrants makes a big difference. This draws again from psychology and, and the idea of contact theory, that the more meaningful interaction you have with someone from another group, the less likely you are to be able to maintain prejudiced views towards that group. And it makes sense. If you get most of your view of, of an other from 
sort of stereotypical portrayals on TV or the news, it's much easier to maintain these big categorical um, ideas about them. But when you have four or five good friends who are not all the same, and many of whom are hardworking, contributing members of society um, who are from this other group, it's much harder to say, well, all people from that group are like this, right? So we did measure for for contact how how frequently did people interact with immigrants uh was it positive or not and in what kind of settings and we're finding that that did at least make some difference that um those who had more especially valence more positive interaction um tended to um not have as high expectations of the invisibility, political and social, compared to those who had less interaction. Um, and maybe Matt can chime in a little bit also on some of the, the variations within that pattern. And that finding is consistent with, so those general survey findings about how hostility towards immigrants is, tends to be greater in those counties in America where there are fewer immigrants, right? So. Matt, did you want to put some more detail on this? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, just highlighting, first of all, that it's the, the positivity and the quality of the contact that seems to matter the most. So in other words, not just, it's really not how often one interacts with immigrants, but how, in what context, and especially how positive those interactions are. And so that has important implications potentially for um, thinking about, you know, what sorts of policies say in the future might um, encourage, right? Those sorts of positive contacts. The other thing I just wanna piggyback on what Bill mentioned, the geographical element. One of our hopes for, you know, further down the lines, we have a lot of other analyses to do first, but is to look um, at the kind of geographical elements of this, um, of this situation and also just sort of residential contacts. So we have, uh, we're able to tell which state um, the respondents in our survey data set live in, as well as whether they live in urban or rural areas. And so, you know, I think that that will be very interesting in thinking about regional politics um, and the rural-urban divide in the U.S. to kind of apply um, our framework to those to those dimensions. Okay, well, I, I want to hone in on your experiment uh, that was embedded in your survey, which which takes a look at reactions to political uh, engagement by immigrants. So I uh, want to describe how that, the, sort of the setup here, how the experiment worked, and then and what did you find from it? So I can start off with that, but I'll start with the caveat by saying that we haven't done as much analyses with the experiment as with some of the other data. And so some of the things I'm going to talk about are a little bit more provisional and a little more simplistic, but just kind of set up what the experiment was. We basically, um, randomly divided the 1800 respondents in our survey data set to each view a different photograph of a political protest, a street protest. Um, and so we had equal numbers of, of respondents in each experimental condition. And we had a baseline, what we call a baseline condition, which showed a photograph of a women's rights protest in the United States. And there was a short piece of text attached to each photograph. It just described uh, what the protest was. So in this case, it was a group of women and their supporters protesting for their rights. And then, so that was one condition, which was our sort of baseline, a women's rights 
protest. And then we had several conditions that were all immigrant rights protests um, that were virtually identical to the women's rights protest with some sort of uh, changes in the photograph um, to uh, reflect variations. And so we had a, an overall immigrant rights protest in which uh, uh, protesters were shown and described as such, um, but all of the protest signs were in English, for example. We had another one that was the same, except some of the protest signs were in Spanish, um, but others were in English. We had another one in which some protest signs were in English, but some were in Arabic. Um, we had another one that was the same as the original immigrant rights protest, but the only difference was that um, some of the women protesters in the photos, in the photo, excuse me, were wearing hijabs. Um, and then the last one was uh, some women wearing hijabs and some signs in Arabic. So it, it varied both the language element and the religious element. So we had very different kinds of photos that, so they all show political activity by immigrants, um, but they varied the social cues um, and that were reflected, right? Um, and so um, we, and then we asked the respondents after viewing the photographs, a series of questions, uh, should protesters have the right to engage in this protest? Um, to what extent do respondents see the protest as violent? To what extent are they uncomfortable with the protest? To what extent do they think the protest violates American values? And then their overall reaction to the protests, asking them to just um, uh, describe, choose words from a list by which to describe the protesters in the photo. So we had some negative words and some positive words. So we had a variety of different measures. Um, we found that, you know, first and most importantly, we think um, overall reactions to the immigrant rights protests as compared to the women's protest baseline condition were much more negative. Right. So on all of the measures that I just described, people made a clear distinction between the women's rights protest and the immigrant rights protests. Right. Um, and then, you know, we also found that respondents were way more likely to uh, feel uncomfortable after viewing um, the immigrant rights protests than the women's rights protest. Um, way more likely to see the immigrant rights protests as violent. And those last two were especially the case for the protests that, uh, that made Islam or religion um, more salient through the hijabs. Um, uh, and so, you know, we see potential evidence there for the kind of Islamophobic dimension. Um, and then finally, I mean, the, this, and this might be the most interesting one, in some ways, you know, people were way more likely to describe the immigrants' rights protests in negative terms than the women's rights protests. And again, especially the uh, protests that, uh, that, that made uh, religion salient. So that's sort of a snapshot, right, of what we found so far. We have a lot more uh, additional analyses we want to do with those. Okay, great. Um, a lot of rich analysis uh, here, and I'm sure you have plans for even more uh, probing of of uh, the, the, this data and see what you can find out about uh, attitudes towards immigrants. Um, anything you'd want to add uh, about what you've discovered so far that our listeners 
ought to be aware of. Um, I guess some of the implications that come out of it are complicating the easy stories that people tell. Um, on from our experiment, you know, I mentioned earlier that religion and, and language can play a really important role as markers of difference that make certain immigrants seem more threatening or or more likely to be rejected than others. But our experiment allows us to delve into that even a little bit more by showing multiple languages, right? And it was clear that um, people didn't perceive Arabic the same way that they perceive Spanish. Um, Arabic in general was seen as, as sort of on, on the more, more negative side of the spectrum. Um, and on religion, we didn't have another religious cue, but um, if people thought that many of, of the Latin American immigrants coming in might be Catholic, which is different than the dominant Protestant group, that certainly did not come through as, as a factor that seemed to make people reject them compared to the Islamophobia that Matt mentioned. And so which religions, which um, language groups are, are stigmatized is is sometimes a complex factor, but a, a one that is widely shared and understood within society. So this isn't just an individual factor. It's something that societies um, kind of um, understand together. And I, I guess coming back to a point we alluded to before was um, ideology. And the. I, I think that... Um, it gives some hope maybe that there's not, you know, half the country that is a lost cause for thinking about having more constructive attitudes about immigration. Um, the, the power of the, the meaningful contact that we measured um, actually folks across an ideological range um, were more affected and, and, and more um, likely to have their prejudice reduced, so to speak, by that meaningful contact compared to those with high SDO. SDO is sort of a more ingrained psychological characteristic. So if you're thinking about, well, how do we do anything about this? Um, it might be more constructive to figure out um, how to find folks with that, uh, with the um, lower SDO or, um, you know, approach folks across a, a range of ideology. And you might have some success with that compared to going to a bunch of high SDO folks where you may not get much change even from the contact. So those are the kinds of things that the more fine grained analyses can actually have some helpful um, implications for us to understand. Okay, super. Uh, so, what about the future for your project? Uh, where do you see yourselves at this point? Uh, what do you envision uh, for the future? I'll, I'll start and then I'd, I'd be interested to hear Matt um, chime in on this too. Um, during the grant period, we have several um, you know, key outputs that we are planning. The centerpiece is a scholarly article and we've already presented it 
at a couple of uh, venues in the department at Providence College, at a workshop at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, then we have it on the slate to present at the American Political Science Association and then hopefully submit it to a journal after that. And that'll be focused on more the descriptive um, statistical evidence that we talked about. There will be a, another scholarly article focused more on the experimental evidence um, so that you will, we'll have both pieces that are, are from this research agenda, but kind of can take each set of evidence seriously. And we also are, are pretty committed to the idea that this shouldn't just be navel gazing among academics, uh, that we this is so timely and has concrete implications for politics now that we want to translate it into some forms that can contribute to political debates and a broad understanding among society. So um, we have already been sharing bits of it in social media. Uh, we have planned actually an explainer video about the concept because the concept, the invisibility bargain, I think has a lot of potential to help people think about the way immigration reception works in lots of contexts. And then um, we're working on some op-eds as well that would be shorter pieces, more focused, but really target a, a wider audience and not just other academics. Um, and, you know, there's, as Matt alluded to earlier, there are additional papers. It's such a rich set of data that there's lots of papers that are within it that we can conti continue drawing on and hopefully invite other scholars into that conversation, too, once we publish the data. You know, and you alluded earlier to uh, policy changes that, that maybe this data, this information would, would stimulate some thought about policies and approaches to take to to addressing uh, immigration. Right, I'm currently on sabbatical and living here in Washington, DC. So I'm hoping to be able to use that proximity to tap into some of the, the policy networks that are, are here and help people to use the kind of knowledge that we're, we're creating in, in practical ways. The only other thing I would add to that and just in terms of the broader implications of this is that we haven't talked too much about this today, but um, there are potentially large implications for the media and for, you know, news discourse. And so, like, you know, there's a lot of othering um, in the news and in media discourse. There's a lot, empirical research and political communication shows a lot of uh, association of outgroups and immigrants specifically with violence, with chaos, with um, disruption. And so, you know, I think that our findings, as we kind of spin them out more and elaborate them from the experiment, can potentially help, you know, by getting it more out into the broader public, um, maybe help um, news media to rethink, right, the ways in which they cover, right, um, immigration and, and, and also immigrant rights issues, right? Um, and, you know, it's a complicated subject about why the media do what they do, which is, you know, subject for a, another another day, another podcast. But I think our project has a bit to say about that um, and, and maybe some newer things to say about it that haven't been said before. Oh, great. Well, uh, Matt and Jeff, thanks so much. Uh, this is a fascinating project, and I'm very glad that uh, this collaboration developed and uh, and I, I like the idea that uh, that that Jeff was talking about earlier that that uh, 
to study immigration in the United States, it's very useful to look at how immigration issues occur in other parts of the world. And, and I think one of the great things about your project is that it, it grew out of uh, Jeff's work in, in Ecuador, uh, and, and now you're focused in the United States. And you know, that's a, a really, really interesting uh, facet of what you're doing. So uh, best wishes with this project. Uh, I, I read one of your papers that you've produced and it was fascinating and I look forward uh, to uh, the other uh, scholarly work you produce. And, and I'm very pleased to hear that you're interested in trying to uh, get this, uh, the findings of this project uh, into the uh, more mainstream and sort of popular media as well. Okay, so, so thanks very much for being on Beyond Your Newsfeed. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will find this a very interesting conversation. Thanks for having us, Bill. It was wonderful to to be here and be able to share it. Yeah, yeah, great, Jeff, and great to have you uh, uh, as someone who was our colleague for several years, and uh, great to have you even back at Providence College via Zoom. It's a, it's a great thing. So, uh, and uh, and Matt, uh, always good to uh, have you on the podcast and. Anyway, we'll have you both back maybe in a, uh, several months from now to, to talk about more findings from your analysis of this very interesting data. So thanks so much for, for uh, joining us on the podcast today. And thanks very much to Chris Judge of the Providence Office of Marketing Communications, who's producing this episode. And thanks uh, to our listeners uh, for being uh supporters of Beyond Your Newsfeed, please tell four friends about our podcast. Thanks.